Calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona! I don't believe it! Well left by York, fed by Cole. Back to Andy Cole for Dwight York. Fantastic goal for Manchester United. Can Manchester United score? They always score. Gitch with a shot! Sheringham! Name on the trophy! Beckham. It's a Sheringham! And Solskjaer has won it! Ready! Welcome to episode 43 of the Red Devil Talk podcast, a podcast where I speak to athletes, coaches and performers to find out their secrets in achieving high performance. This week I'm joined by a new co-host, a new voice from the kingdom, County Kerry, Kira O'Sullivan, who is studying with me in UL. She has a degree in health and well-being and is a personal trainer. Kira, how are things? Not too bad. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. <laughs> no problem. Our guest this week, I'm delighted about this one, is a lady who is no stranger to high performance a double Paralympic medalist, a three-time Paralympic swimmer, a world record holder, a three-time Paracanoe world champion, and has been selected to represent the British Paracanoe Paralympic team in Tokyo. And most importantly, she is a United fan. It is Charlotte Henshaw. Charlotte, thanks for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Your story is fascinating. Uh, a silver medal at the 2012 Paralympic Games in London, bronze in Rio in 2016, you then switched sports. It has to be said you excelled. It reminds me of Sarah Story. I'm sure you're familiar with Sarah Story. She switched cause. She's excelled too. Talk me through that transition. How did it happen? Because I know there were talks of retirement from sport after Rio. Yeah, so um, I knew that going into Rio, I, I, was, I was 29 Um at the time I was turning 30 in, in the January after the games and um, that's ancient in swimming terms. And um, if I knew that actually, I wasn't sure that I would be able to keep up with swimming moving forward from that point. I wasn't sure that I'd be able to, to move forward with my event. I was a breaststroke swimmer and it had moved on quite considerably between um, London and Rio and I'd managed to move with it, but. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do that again. So um, I knew at that point that perhaps swimming wasn't my future in sport, but um, I wasn't ready to, to give up being an athlete. I felt like I've got more to offer. Um, but that being said, it was a case of coming back and kind of trying to find that, that new avenue that I could still, um, you know, be an athlete, but um, in what I didn't know. So I, I came back from Rio and had a bit of a break and then, uh, it was actually part of the UK sport talent transition um, team that kind of matched me up with two or three different sports that I went then on to try. Um, but canoeing was the one that, that stood out and that's the one where I stayed. What would you say was the biggest challenge or how, how did you bridge the gap in your skill set? Obviously, you're, you were an accomplished swimmer and then you're training sports, but how did you bridge that gap in your skill set? Um. I mean, I think it was about putting myself outside of my comfort zone very much because I'd come from a world that I knew very well. I'd swum since I was four years old and I was, you know, 30 when I, I officially retired. Um, and I'd never really been in a kayak before. I'd had a bit of a dabble about 18 months before that, um, before I retired. But um, I think 
in terms of um you know acquiring the skill the skill required for canoeing it was just um trusting the people around me and using that um that experience from swimming i guess of um just having no fear and kind of putting yourself on you know that line of okay i'm probably the hardest thing is to get your head around it because i think you know as a as an already elite athlete i was um uh, I was successful and trying to put myself into a position where I was a, the new girl and I had no credentials at all and I didn't even know whether I was going to be any good at it full stop I think that was the, the key to kind of allowing myself to become better was to to open myself up to that and um, not put too much pressure on myself and, and enjoy the learning experience because it had been a long time since I'd had that. I think I'll half it now but um, I just think a forced Paralympics in two sports is just crazy it's um insane but how excited are you and are you looking forward to this year after 18 months of covid i'm really looking forward to it i feel like um pretty much every athlete has felt like this year has been a long time coming um and yeah i mean when uh, the games were announced as as being postponed for 12 months um it was a really hard thing to get your head around because on the one hand you you knew that it was the right thing because you know there was no point in us last year kind of plowing ahead and in a very very unsafe time as it was then um and i i think that was quite hard to get um your head around but once we had done that and once we we planned for the new dates and planned for the new challenge um, for me, it was about flipping my mindset as to how can we see this as a positive thing? I, I'm relatively new to the sport of canoeing. So, um, you know, an extra year for me was one where I thought I could really make some positive steps forward um, to prepare myself even better for, for Tokyo, which, you know, is the mindset I tried to keep then for the last 12 months. Yeah, and as you mentioned there, prepare, but how do you actually prepare for, for such a big event like the Paralympics? Is there anything in particular that you do? I guess for Olympic and Paralympic athletes, our whole uh, training is geared around four-year cycles. And um, yes, there are things in between like Worlds and Europeans, but you know the, the one that you're waiting for is the Olympics or the Paralympics. So um, we work on a four-year training block to make sure that we peak at the right time for that games. Um, so it changes from which year of the cycle you're in, but in that last year, it's about refining what you've worked and built over those last three years and, um, you know, finding those small margins that perhaps you, you haven't found over the three years prior. Um, and then as you get close to the games, it's about just... Um, maintenance I guess you don't want to be tr throwing too many things in into into the program that you've not you know tried and tested so it, it all it's almost like on a bit of cruise control management um in in sort of the last few months before a games um and that's kind of you know six days a week um in the gym on the water um doing work with psych psychologists and things like that it, there's all little things uh, pieces of the puzzle that slowly get slotted into place over the four year four-year cycle you touched on something there you said that the training was a four-year cycle does yeah. that bring even more pressure to achieve optimum performance on that one day for that one race i mean it it, it is more pressurized because people do you know work their way towards a paralympics or an olympics and but ultimately you're only racing the same people that you would race at a world championships but the events got different branding on the the medals look different there's more of an excitement about an olympics and a paralympics so 
with that comes um you know a, a lot of um expectation and pressure but for, for me certainly I, I try not to see it as something different in terms of a race day it's what I practice every single day for and we do hundreds and hundreds of 200 meter time trials over the year and the Olympics and Paralympics is just another one of those for me and it's about um you know practicing my process so that it can be as robust as possible and on the most pressurized day which would be finals day at a Paralympic Games for me um but the 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 sweet spot is certainly to to almost perform as if it's just another day and and the result will take care of itself i love that i love that attitude of it's just another day jumping back to covid and preparation mm-hmm. how would you say covid impacted your training in comparison to previous events or previous games it, it, it certainly did impact it i think for me it was the longest i'd ever been away from the environment which I'm used to training in. So um, we were training from home for, I think about 13 weeks and that was no uh, water work, no um, not getting in a boat for that time. So when you're in in a water sport, um, not being able to be on the water or in the water is is a huge thing. So it was adapting that to how we could train at home on ergos and, and things like that. And then um makeshift gyms like everybody was doing you know off the fence out on the patio and all of that it was exactly the same for us um and and i think the beauty of it in in a way was it we had to think outside the box if you want to use that term we had to be creative and almost focus on things that we could focus on rather than things that we usually focus on and actually we've unearthed some things that we were perhaps overlooking before because other things were taking precedence. Whereas now, because we've had that opportunity to explore different things, we found that actually they're really useful to keep into my training week. So we will do that, like working on small skills, balance work, which, you know, we kind of take for granted at other times. We, we almost made that the priority and, and that was really exciting. And, um, you know, moving forward, that's something that we're, we're hopefully going to take, you know, beyond the COVID kind of training restrictions. You mentioned there that you use psychologists coming up to it. Obviously, me and Jimmy are studying sports psychology. So do you do anything in particular, uh, mental training or preparation for the games or in general as well? Yeah, so I certainly since I was in my mid-20s, I would say that I engaged more with the sports psychologist. And um, I studied psychology at uni as well, and it was something that I've always been interested in. But in my earlier career, I could never really um, relate it to myself. I found it interesting to read about, and I could understand that sports people use it and use it well. But at that time, it wasn't something that I really engaged with until I got to a point in my career that was... Um, I really needed to work on my mindset my my nerves and my and my mind were actually making it so that I couldn't perform physically because I was getting nervous I was getting ten, tense and um I wasn't able to perform as well as I perhaps you know physically was able because of my mindset so um I engage with it a lot now and I have regular meetings with our sports psych and I really try to practice um, mindfulness and presence when I'm competing. Cause I think not only does it relax me or help me to, you know, control my nerves. Um, 
especially in a water sport where so much of it is about feel and um how the boat and the blades move through the water to to be really tactile and, and focus in on the feel of my hands on the paddle the feel of the water if I put my hand down those sort of things really help to kind of ground me into the moment rather than letting my mind wander to you know the what if and um, so that's a key part of my race prep like on the day in the moment is is keeping in that moment and um controlling where my mind's wandering and do you do anything so you obviously do that on the day is there any other techniques that you would do like in the boat while you're training or you just kind of mimic what you're doing on the day um i do use imagery sometimes i kind of do visualization and and again of how i feel the water when i'm paddling well and all of that like that's really important um and we kind of do exercises to kind of um focus in on um sort of more widely it's, it's not really specific for um performance on on the day or in on the field of play but um work around you know values and identity and things like that like i'm i'm a mentor as well for some for some uh, a younger athlete and we do a lot of work on that and not allowing our entire person to be seen just as an athlete and i it might not be a typical psychology thing to do but i think it's really important to to get that perspective and in turn it helps the mind when you've got that bit of perspective and you know your entire um um worth isn't caught up in how successful you know you race from a to b on a particular day yeah that's interesting we were actually discussing that last week in college about athletes identity and you know after the games and people like retirement and stuff so that's good that you brought that up clearly you're physically fit you know there's no question about that in terms of your mental health and your well-being you know Kira's she studied well-being done modules on well-being you mentioned mindfulness is there any other activities you would have engaged in during COVID to try and maintain your your well-being I mean I think for me it was about connection and um staying in in touch with the people that you know fed me positively I guess um was was one thing and, and it's really important for me just um moving on from slightly that that whole thought of I'm not just an athlete like there is more of me than than just the canoeist um, and so it's really important for me in like a non-covid world to have that balance of like, like going to watch united play like going to the theater and things like that and having interests outside the sport actually helped my sporting performance and with covid obviously there was so much restriction on what we could do um finding other ways to do that was really important for me so you know the zoom quizzes at the start and um having like watch parties of a film with people or um trying to learn a new skill or reading something like that was really important to give me a bit of space away from the fact that i was training and living in my house and on my garden and i wasn't getting any escape from that so it was really important to to have that break where there was something more to what was going through my mind than than training i'm interested to ask you mentioned uh learning new skills can you tell us what new skills you learned well i tried to learn crochet i bought i bought uh needles and some wool oh, they're not called needles actually they're called hooks i think and it shows how much of it i did i did one go at it and i was terrible i had no patience whatsoever 
so I've still got all the stuff but I haven't used it so that wasn't that wasn't a good one for me but um I I, enjoy, I started to enjoy cooking more actually like usually it's about what's quick and what's able to replenish the fuel like as quickly as possible but because I had time I was cooking more and I was being a bit more adventurous and following recipes that took slightly longer and that was a real revelation to me because I, I wouldn't have said before that I enjoyed cooking, but I think now I, my perspective on that has definitely changed. So that, that's been one positive thing to come out of it. I bother you clearly. It's sitting over there <laughs> gathering dust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't say I did much now to myself, maybe a bit of baking, but <laughs> like yeah. everyone, I think. You mentioned this heater there a minute ago. I know you're a big fan of this heater and musicals. Now, I went to a musical once, a girl I've seen at the time, she bought us tickets for Matilda. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking at the time, God, this is not going to be my thing now. It was class. <laughs> it was absolutely class. Good one. It's a good Matilda, one. Have you seen Matilda? I have, yeah. Unreal. The London Games, and I really enjoyed it. I, I wasn't sure about it either. I mean, I'll, I'll pretty much sit through every, anything once. Um, but uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that one. It's a good one. I just actually want to know, like growing up, who was your biggest sporting influence? There were there were a lot. I obviously I was a keen swimmer when I was when I was growing up. So um a big, you know, inspiration in the swimming world was probably Ian Thorpe. And um, who was, you know, he was a young guy going to a home games and, you know, doing incredible things in the swimming pool. Um in terms of certainly para sport that there was a, a lady who um I met when I was 10 years old, she was um, called Emily Jennings then, she's since married, um, but she had been to the Atlanta Games and, and won a gold medal and I met her in, at like a, a, a sports weekend for kids like down in Swindon, like it was really random leisure centre that I was at, but she was there and she brought her medal and I got to kind of hold it and meet her and because she was doing the sport that I was doing as well, that was a and she was local to kind of where I was from. It, it it made it more of a kind of tangible dream, I guess, to be part of the Paralympic movement. And, and that was my real kind of shift from just doing swimming as, as a hobby to something that I was like, actually, I'd really like to do this. Um, not professionally, but like as, a, as you know, my path moving forward, I, I want to be involved in Paralympic sports. So she was a big influence on, on, on the path that then I eventually took for sure. The big question on this podcast, in your view, uh, what are the, some of the factors that are absolutely crucial to achieve high performance? For, well, certainly the things I've found is the willingness to, um, to, to collaborate is huge. Even in a, an individual sport, it, it takes so much more than just the individual who's on the start line or, or whatever or on the field of play. Um, there's a there's a whole host of people that have an input and a valuable input and um, you know to, to work collaboratively is, is huge and to be willing to have difficult conversations which isn't always you know at the top of people's list it's not something you jump to but being able to be really open and honest with the people that you're around is really important I've certainly found and um, I think as well just a, an ability to I think you have have to have something innate you have to have that ability to 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 learn and you have to have that that will to learn and the dedication to to put yourself on the line every single day and I I don't know if you can 
I don't know if you can teach that. I think it's there or it's not. And you can get better at it for sure. But I think if if it's something innate that you have to want to to do that every day. Um, but I think certainly that that there's some of the key things that you need to be a successful athlete. You touched on something there as well, this idea of a will to learn. I suppose it, it's kind of connected to something I'm really interested in. It's this idea of self-reflection. Mm. High performers, they analyze the performance, they evaluate the good, the bad. Is self-reflection something you engage in? Yes, definitely. Um, I think it's really important to reflect on things, especially in sport, because things aren't always going to go the, the way that you want them to, whether it's training, whether it's uh, you know the biggest race of your life, there's always going to be potential pitfalls. And I, I think to be able to reflect on, on your performance and, and is, is huge. So that's certainly an easy one to kind of reflect on. Um, and we we also try and practice that like every every training week we have um for canoeing it's a lot more um scientific it's technical we use a gps unit um when we race and do race efforts and you know it gives us our stroke rate every 10 meters it gives us our uh, maximum speed it gives us you know all sorts of data that we then sit down and reflect on um every week with my coach i have a meeting to kind of go through our, our data um, and and that's crucial certainly in our sport is um you know understanding what the boat's doing and what you're doing at every single point of that race is 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 key when you're only racing for you know less than 47 seconds hopefully like every every second counts and every meter counts and it's important to know what we're doing in every single one of them I want to ask you about your surgery that you had last December, if that's all right. Yeah, of course. I know you've been experiencing pain in your abdomen for nearly eight years, I believe. Yeah. Can you talk me through that process. And I mean, from the initial pain to managing the pain to, I would imagine, competing in pain and then mm. the surgery. What was that process like? Yeah, so it was something that I, I hadn't really... Um, taken much notice of it at the earlier part of those eight years I was still swimming at the time and I would occasionally get really tough pain in the lower right hand side of my abdomen and some I thought it was just muscular and especially with my disability I'm a bilateral leg amputee so I, I use prosthetics that are pretty heavy so I wondered if it was something to do with the hips and the hip flexors things like that that you know I was just overworking and I never really thought anything of it and then it wasn't until um, I kept getting like sporadic intervals of, of that pain. And then when I'd moved over to canoeing, there was a big shift in certainly um, sports that, you know, come under the English Institute of Sports umbrella um, on tracking menstrual cycle and tracking um, that for performance in female athletes. And so I started using an app that um, I could track my menstrual cycle. And it was only then that I realized that this pain was, linked to that and you know started to put a bit of a pattern together and um i think it, it, at that point i was I, I thought i need to go and get you know a more of a gynae consultant looked at that rather than i'd been to a gastroenterologist i'd been to see all sorts of people and got no joy and it was only sort of 20 late 2019 early 2020 that i i actually had got enough evidence to kind of go to the specialist and she could sort of almost diagnose me with endometriosis um but unfortunately 
endometriosis can only be 100% confirmed with it with the surgery, which is why I ended up having to have it at, at um, you know, in December last year. Um, and that was more for the fact that, you know, that the pain wasn't being managed, but we didn't know how to manage it until we had a diagnosis. And also for my peace of mind, you know, when you constantly get in pain and, and trying to train and just live your life when you're getting pain, your mind can play funny tricks on you. And I was at some points was convinced that I was making it up and it actually wasn't there because no one was finding anything. But then on the other hand, I was getting wound up that we couldn't find anything, but there was something really seriously wrong and that was causing my pain. So I think if nothing else, having that surgery which hasn't cured my endometriosis i haven't had any removed because it would have been as too big a surgery to do in a games year but it gave me that sense of a sort of relief that i wasn't making it up and also you know now i know what i'm dealing with and it's just another thing that we've got to kind of work around and that was a huge turning point for me in terms of like where my head was at around it and it, and it has actually made the pain much more bearable when it comes because i know how to deal with it now Hi, this is Ken Doherty, and you're listening to Red Devil Talk, the podcast with Jimmy Williams. This podcast is brought to you in association with Classic Retro Shirts. Classic Retro Shirts sell a large variety of retro jerseys from a number of clubs and countries and are very prominent on Manchester United. United season ticket holders themselves, giving fans a chance to look back through history. Classic Retro Shirts are on Instagram at Classic Retros 2, or you can visit their website at classicretros.co.uk. To get a £10 discount off your purchase, you can use the code RDT10 at the checkout on the website or you can send the code via direct message to their Instagram. Classic Retro Shirts. This is one of our major listening questions was how do you actually stay motivated? I can imagine that's quite tough to deal with and especially when you're coming up to the games as well motivation is not really something that I've ever struggled with and when I have I've known it's time to kind of have a bit of a again a self-reflection and a bit of a why is this happening why am I feeling this way because it's not usual for me um and sometimes it is just that I need to take a step back and and have a have a break for a couple of weeks or something so that I can um go and do things that aren't dictated by by my sport and some usually for me that kind of sorts me right out and and puts my mind back into that place of you know I'm present and I'm here to work and that that's that and um, so I, I think also it's about you know you, you've got goals in mind and you know that that requires uh, an immense amount of work and you know I remember someone once saying to me that, you know, the days that you're not motivated and you're not putting in a hundred percent for training, the person that you're racing or your rival may well be. And, you know, you don't want to get to a major competition and not have every stone be left unturned, you know, like you want to have known that you've done every single thing that you possibly can to perform as well as you can. And I think for me, that puts me in a nice place to, to perform well. Um, I can't control what other people are doing absolutely so it may not mean that the result is what I want but if I can walk off that field of play knowing that I've done absolutely everything then you know you can't ask any more of yourself and you can be at quite a, a content place and I would that's what gets me through it is um I don't ever want to have regrets of what could have happened if I'd have done this better. 
a great mindset to have really if we can move on to the man united questions <laughs> yeah we got we got a fair few I, I couldn't to my listeners i couldn't ask them all of course time constraints and all that but i picked out the main ones how would you get into sporting united through my dad so he he was a united supporter and you know he's a season ticket holder he, he goes every week to old trafford and um, so i think i was he wasn't a season ticket holder at the time but i, I think i was about 10 the first time we went probably the same as every young kid was like did this the, the ground tour and had the pictures on the pitch and um in the media boxes and stuff like that and i i must have been about 10 um and then i think i went to my first match when i was just after my 11th birthday and they lost at home to leicester city one nil um and i thought that that was always going to be my like my luck going to united because i was like they're gonna win on my first time and then they didn't and i was really disappointed but um yeah it, it was through my dad and and I, I still try and go with him um now like when i can um with him and his his pals um and i'm the only usually the only female and there's four of them that like in the 60s and 70s, like, and I'm, you know, sitting with them in the Stratford end and I have a great time. <laughs> Who would you say is your favourite United team? Obviously, there's been some great teams in the last yeah. 30 years. There's been the 94 team. There's been the treble winning team, of course. There's been the 08 team. Yeah. So, so many I, teams. Which one would you say is your favourite? Yeah, I think for me, um, obviously, the first team I went to see was... Um, you know i think it was a season before they won the treble and it was you know all of those kind of players were was were there and um that i've got really fond memories of going to see them and then as i got into my teen years you know i really enjoyed going and watching when uh van nistelrooy was playing and, and and that kind of that kind of era um and then i, I think it, for me it's what you associate those teams with and I remember so clearly watching Rude and I was there on Ronaldo's like debut match and I was with, sitting with my friend and he was a skinny 17 year old and um, obviously he went on to be a part of that amazing team like through to 2008. So I, I don't know whether I can pick a favourite team because they've all got kind of special memories at, at, for certain points of, you know, supporting United. But obviously you can't overlook the treble winning team. They were, they were, you know, a real unit and they did something incredible during that season absolutely in terms of the season in general how do you view it do you think it's been progression so what's your opinion i think that there's, there's definitely been progression from certainly the last few seasons i feel like it was it's at one point i was genuinely getting quite excited because i thought you know things were gonna go well and then obviously we've got a bit of you know that that home form we really struggled with that and um obviously there's always things to learn and things to develop but i i think what's the hardest thing for united fans and i'm one of them that has you know i started to support united when we were in the, the throes of that incredibly successful period that is it it's very rare that that happens and so we've been spoiled for so long we had been spoiled for so long and I think we're at the beginning of rebuilding something and I think we can't expect things to come overnight. And as long as this small progression is being made, I think, which I think we are making um, for sure. I, th I think that's all the spans we can kind of ask and we have to have faith in, in the decisions that are being made and, and that there's a plan in place for, you know, developing the team moving forward. Do you think Ali Gunnar Solskjaer is the man 
to bridge the gap to Man City and bring the league back to Old Trafford? I'm not sure. I think my heart is like he is, but my head says probably not. Yeah, I mean, obviously it was an amazing moment for any United fan when he was made the manager. Like it was, it felt incredibly sort of nostalgic. He's a, he's a red to the core. And I think that's, I think that's part of what United fans want, I think, is that that real understanding and, and love of the club and understanding its values and tr- traditions of, of developing youth and, and understanding that history, I think. So in that respect, I think he, he is the right man. And that's not to say that there aren't things that I wish he'd do differently. And absolutely, I wish he would. But I'm not one of those fans that, you know, as soon as we have a loss uh, is on Twitter with the hashtag Ollie out. Like uh, there has to be some, you know, backing of the team and the decisions that are made. And I, I, I don't know when the right time is to, to kind of call for people's heads to roll. But um, I'd like to think that he's he's the right man and he he's learning in the role and, as we're developing, so is he. And um, yeah, I, I, I would like to think that he's the guy for the job. I do agree with you. There are things I wish he would do differently. Mm. Um, you know, he does have his shortcomings, but he, I also think he deserves a lot of credit because he came into that club and United were in a bad way. Mourinho had left. So I think he yeah. deserves a huge amount of credit for the way he's come in. He's transformed the dressing room. He's transformed the attitude. He's transformed just the values in the team, they go out now, they might lose, but they will lose and, you know, at least they will give it a go. They won't, they won't roll over. Yeah. Whereas I think there were so many games under Jaws in Reno. They went behind. And yeah. They just, packed, and, they just packed it in. You know, as, a, as somebody who goes to the matches and, and watches the matches, like I can't think of a time during that kind of time that I had just, I didn't enjoy going and watching them play. It was, it was so samey and it was predictable and I, I when Ollie came in and he kind of I feel like there was that attacking football again which is exciting to watch and sometimes it's you know it's it's dangerous to play but I felt like I don't know Old Trafford was just kind of it was very they expected everything that was happening whereas now I think there is some elements of that you know you see them kind of on the break doing that in inverted commas playing the united way and 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 i know that people ban that term about a lot but um i think it's so much a part of of the united history i think fans want to see that and i think that gets them excited and it gets them on board and um certainly for me it, it became much more exciting when when he came in and it, they brought a bit of that sparkle back it's just you know the consistency is key it's like in anything like it's got to be consistent and if you're not then you get punished like silly little um losses against teams that you know on paper you should win like it's taking care of those as well as the you know the big derby matches and the liverpool man united like you know those other teams are almost more important because that's where people catch you up and overtake you i'll pass you over to kira now who was going to finish out with the listeners questions thanks very much for your time again no worries Perfect. So just a few listeners' questions that we got. Uh, I'll start off a nice, easy one. What is your favourite movie? Uh, no surprise, it's a musical. It's Moulin Rouge. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, so this one, describe a typical day before competing at the Paralympics. Um, so just from your start to your finish of your day. Yeah, so um, competing at the Games would be... It's different for canoeing because the canoeing uh, competition... 
uh, runs over three days. Um, so the heats will be on a Thursday and then I'd have a day of rest. And if I get through to the final, it would be on the Saturday. So um, usually it would be sort of get up, have breakfast, um, try and keep the mind calm and sort of focused. And then um, at a canoe competition, I head down to the course and sort of check all my equipment, like my paddle, my boat, make sure everything's good because we have to um, be the boat has to be a, a certain race weight it can't be anything less than 12 kilos so in the heat that can affect um the weight and things like that so it's good to check on that morning and get your boat weighed and make sure everything's okay uh check paddles in the right place because i've had it at one competition where my paddle wasn't on the rack where i left it and i had to paddle with a, a random paddle so now i always check my equipment is where it's supposed to be and um then sort of an hour before um, racing, I start doing my land warm up, like mobility, body prep, things like that. And then half an hour before the race time, um, I get on the water and do my water warm up. And it, canoeing runs to the minute, so you have to be where you should be at a certain time. So um, usually uh, it's about making sure that everything is prepped around, giving us enough time to, to warm up on the water and go straight down to the start gates. And how much emphasis do you push on sleep to ensure high performance? It's important. It's important to get the right amount of rest, obviously. Um, I probably don't sleep as much as some other athletes. I, I never was one for napping in the middle of the day unless I was really, really tired because I actually felt worse for doing that. Um, but I think as long as you are resting well and that can be sleep that can be just you know taking the load off your feet or your back and lying on the sofa watching a box set um recovery is key um for me certainly and managing my body through that um just to bring on from the recovery what type of things do you do to recover so for me it's like um epsom salt baths like um or icing and heat things like that um managing training load is also really important like not pushing the body when it really you you know it's telling you that it needs a rest um i think that's something you learn the longer you do it is to, to you know that intuition of what your body's telling you is is huge so that's that's the main one for me listening to my body and, and what it's telling me and then the last one is how do you define success i think for me um you know, obviously everybody wants to be able to stand on the podium and, and, and come back with a, a piece of silverware. Um, but obviously that's not within your control. Like you can do as much as you possibly can to put yourself in that position, but ultimately, you know, the, the result will take care of itself and what you and other people do. So I think for me, success is, you know, like I said earlier, can you, um, you know, put your hand on your heart when you come off a, a race or a, or a game or whatever it is and, and say that you've absolutely done everything that you possibly can. And if the answer is yes, then that's a successful race or a successful day for me um, because anything else is beyond my control. And, and that's all, you know, you can be um, confident about is what the work that you've done. Um, so yeah, that's how I would define it. Just to develop one question Kira asked, I thought it was a really interesting one about, about your typical day. How do you manage the weight? So when you get up in the morning, you have a race at whatever time. How do you manage that weight to ensure that you're not going into your head and you're not kind of sabotaging yourself? Different things like having normal conversations with your teammates, like not acting like it's the biggest day of your life sometimes is, is 
you know, just over the breakfast table at the hotel or whatever it is, or in the village, you know, COVID times not kind of standing. Um, in previous games, it's been just, you know, about having a normal breakfast, having a coffee with my teammates, having a chat about other stuff, like not overthinking what we're about to do is really important. Um, and swimming, I used to have a big gap in the middle of the day, like the heats were in the morning, the finals were in the evening. So I used to go back to my room and like watch Netflix or, um, you know, something on TV that takes me completely out of that worry and that kind of panic, if you like. And um, again, a bit of distraction, I think really helps um, and trying to keep things as normal as possible. And final question. I ask this to everyone and I get a number of answers and I love the diversity of it. If you had 30 minutes to have a conversation with someone, this person can be dead or alive, can be from history, a musician, anyone, who would it be and why? Well, that's a good, a good question. Um, oh, there's so many people. I think um, I, I, two spring to mind and one is non-sporting and one is sporting. So the non-sporting um, one, I would love to, again, I'm a big musical theatre fan. I would love to have met um, Judy Garland. I think she is like an icon of, of musical theatre film and like she had a very tumultuous life. And I think... Um, you know, I just like to kind of have a sit down with her and and talk about that. And um, just it's a different time now. And like, I think that would be really interesting. And then in terms of sport and a United podcast, you probably get this answer all the time, but I'd love to meet Sir Alex. I think he, I just watched his new Amazon film and I've read his books and I just, I find him fascinating the way he man manages people. There's no, you know, there's no secret to the fact that I think that's why he's such a successful manager and how to, you know, con not control, but keep all of those players and all the different characters as part of a team and a successful team um, for so many years and so many different people coming in and out. I think it's, it's fascinating to, to, to read about from a sporting perspective. And um, I'd love to pick his brains about, you know, how he got to that point of being so successful of, um, you know, orchestrating so many different people. It is psychology in a way, isn't it? The way he manages yeah. the different people, not in the conventional sense of the word. People say it's not psychology, but I think mm -hmm. it's absolutely psychology. Well, it's like, you know, that, that story on the, the, the Amazon documentary where uh, I think Giggsy was talking about he was getting a, a roast in for not wearing a, a, a tie to a dinner. And then Cantona walked in in like a white linen suit and he was annoyed that Ferguson had not said anything to him and he was about you know that style and he knew very much how to, to to manage those different personalities to get the best out of people and um all sorts of little stories like that uh, you know a real insight into how to effectively work in in a, in a team and I, I, yeah it's absolutely rooted in psychology for sure brilliant thanks very much charlotte it's been a privilege to meet you and chat no, to you thank you for having me Appreciate we'll be watching you and supporting uh, you. Thank you. Thank you it was we a pleasure all the best thank you very much thanks for listening to red devil talk we hope you enjoyed our latest episode and don't forget you can follow us on twitter and instagram at red devil talk if you listen on an apple device please consider leaving a review and a five star rating if you have any questions or comments or want more information on red devil talk podcasts you can get in touch via email at reddevil talk media at gmail.com